Welcome to Mutuality Matters, Gender Theology for the Gospel Empowerment of Men and Women. I am Erin Monas, here with my co-host Blake Dean, and we're recording from Plumwood Cottage on the beautiful campus of Barry College. Hey, Blake. What's up? So, watch, read, or listen. All right. I'm going to pull in Aaron Monez and I'm going to break the rules a little bit. I'm not going to tell you what I'm actually watching, reading, or listening to, but I'm going to tell you what I am going to be watching, which is I'm going to be revisiting our sweet friends on the West Wing, because as we know, we are in primary season, Mm -hmm. we are approaching the presidential election, and we should all get informed, and I think the best way to start doing that is to watch the West Wing again. I know. It really is. It really is therapeutic. It's good. It's like such an outdated show, but I love it. Or it's angering, because we just want them all to be president. (laughs) It is true. Friends, listeners, we feel your angst. We are here with you. Um, I would like to say that I am watching right now pretty much every B-level reality show that exists on Netflix because this winter I cannot seem to not be sick. Like it's just been an ongoing process. I learned that you can have bronchitis for eight weeks. I did not know this. Do you think that watching B-level reality shows contributes to your symptoms? You know, I hadn't thought about that, Blake Dean. That's I think it does. <laughs> I think it does. It's very possible. The germs just want to stay. Well, we are so excited to have you with us again. Um, if you have been uh, with us the last couple episodes, and God bless you if you have stayed with us these last couple episodes, we have been talking a lot about dating and we talked about um, theology and sociological aspects. We talked about um We talked about singleness, we talked about uh, sex and physical affection, Mm -hmm. and we asked you for your questions. And so this is kind of our uh, wrap up Mm Q&A on this whole dating uh, series. And we've taken uh, the questions that you've sent us and we've kind of boiled them down and we're just going to revisit a couple things and hopefully, hopefully um, answer some of these uh, that we didn't have a chance to get to. And y'all are pulling no punches. So... (laughs) These are really good when, questions. When we make the topics, we get to control what we talk about, but we are submitting ourselves to your questions. So please have grace. <laughs> yes, these, remember listeners, these are your questions. And even if that doesn't mean you, you specifically, we're just laying it out for all of you. Um, you're all culpable. So, um, so like <laughs> Dean, do you want to uh, start us off by? Sure. One listener asks, how can we stop making God do the breaking up for us? You are very passionate about this topic. I am. Well, okay, I work amongst college students, so I've got about a million stories related to this question. And friends, if if you're kind of twitching right now or you're getting sort of that nostalgic angst, you too might have been in a position where you thought you were in a relationship and then suddenly God broke up with you. (laughs) It happens. This unfortunately happens. This is like an unfortunate Christian trend. Can you like lay out the scene for me if I don't know, like what are we talking about? Okay, God becomes kind of this scapegoat. I'm just going to call this out. This is a fear move. I'm pretty sure. Mm. Like we don't like conflict. We don't like handling things. Breakups are always, always, always messy. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. And it's just sort of inevitable. Like you can't, like there's no, there's no way for matters to the heart not to just involve some painful things. And so in our efforts to soften the blow, we over-spiritualize stuff. Mm. And so what'll happen is it'll be something like, I've been praying a lot and God told me that we shouldn't be together anymore. Like I need to take a break and just work on myself spiritually and God told me I just need to be single for a while. And I mean, just and on and on and mm. on and on. And and to be fair, and this is what really stinks about this, is 
God does tell us stuff and God is leading us in our relationships, but this has been used as such a superficial card so often that it really damages the idea that we are, you know, using God in our relationships because a lot of times we are just throwing this crap out there and it's, it's not really from God. It's just a, something we convince ourselves to do, which I think is hence the question. I think the, sh- the shade being thrown in the question is sure. that people are misusing God. And I think there is an appropriate way that you alluded to this, but I think I, I want to nuance it out. There is an appropriate way um, to be prayerful and there's an appropriate way to move forward or to end relationships out of wisdom or because yes. it's not going anywhere or for a n- number of reasons. But I think um, to your point, there is, there's some love and care that instead of just saying, well, God told me, it's like, well, no, like I, I'm really feeling this and this, and I may not even particularly have great reasons for you, but being really uh, vulnerable and authentic and including God in the conversation is not the problem. The problem is when you exclude yourself from the conversation. <laughs> yes. um, I think that that's the issue. Mm. God is more than welcome in that conversation. It's just you also have to come to the table because that's what relationships are, right? It's yeah. um, a partnership and um, with the working of the spirit and with prayer and with the presence of God. But um, it does not excuse you from having to have really hard moments and yeah. say really not fun things. This goes back to the first episode, the whole like sociological versus theological approach. In finding out the way that both of those things interact, we just have got to get more honest. Like if we're going to be in the dating world, if we're going to put ourselves into that, we have to be ready to be more honest than we're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of games that happen in dating. There's just a lot of these things. And when we use our faith as a cloak to to mask our insecurities, um, we really do a disservice to others. And just even like what you hear in this question is people having beef with God because of the way other people treated them, wielding that yeah. as a weapon instead of just really being, being honest. So yeah. like God is in there, but, but be sure to really be honest with people about why we need to end a relationship because there are always good reasons. And that's really helpful. It hurts and it's mm-hmm. very hard, but in love and with care, we can still communicate those things and we're all better off. How, how do you think like just hypothetically, so say I'm in a relationship and I, it's not because um, of anything that was done wrong. It's not because um, of a quality of another person or a quality of me. Um, it's just simply, I don't think this is the right thing and the right fit. And I have been prayerful about it. And I really do think um, that for a number of reasons, this may or may not be, this is probably not the situation that um, I need to find myself in romantically. Um, How would you approach that in a thoughtful and spiritually honest way? Yes. um, Without kind of maybe excluding yourself from the situation? Totally. That's a great example. And I think in that case, you're going to want to consult people who care about you, mentors, friends, about how to articulate that lack of compatibility. Hmm. Because a lot of times when we end relationships, we have to end them over and over and over again. Like you have to have five conversations following the breakup. And this is part of our problem with clarity. Like we, we, we don't seek clarity in our dating relationships. Oftentimes we, we struggle. So if we're going to say to someone, I you know, it isn't like a big, terrible, awful thing. It's just, we don't seem to be as compatible as I thought we were going to be. You're going to want to back that up with something that 
that shows what you're discerning about that person. Mm -hmm. Now they may have trouble accepting that they may struggle to see that from your perspective. That is often the case. Normally breakups are people being on two different pages, but the more clarity you can give someone about why, even if it hurts, allows them to walk away with something with a little bit more closure and maybe not having to have like Mm -hmm. several clarifying conversations. So I think you just have to prep for that and you have to talk to people near you. And if they understand you and they get it, then that lets you know that you're probably in good shape to talk to this person that you've that you've been with and you, we just have to come to the fact that we're going to hurt people's feelings yeah 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 so don't don't use god <laughs> as an excuse yeah i i am so i'm i'm so ashamed to admit i've done this mm. i've totally done this it's the worst so let's rebuke myself and all of us out there let's let's stop making god do the breaking up for us fair enough What barriers do you think stand in the way of the church providing comprehensive, emotionally healthy, scientifically correct sexual education? Yeah, this one is interesting because it implies in the question that um, we're not doing this and we're not doing it well. And, you know, it's it's tough because there's there's an aspect of this where people say, well, is that the church's job? Is that something that should happen? Of course, we've been having the same debate about whether it's the school's job. in my case, I had parents who were incredibly proactive in this, and so I didn't have to worry about school or church doing this for me. I'm, I come, but I'm the exception. Yeah. Most of my friends had to kind of piecemeal it together, most of it from pop culture, mm. um, and just really weird conversations with friends and their older siblings, and a lot of other like toxic situations yeah. that they found themselves in. So, so what are your thoughts on this, Blake? Um, I have a couple. I think number one, the really hard reality is that research is telling us that if you're not talking to your kids about sex by eight years old, it is too late. They're going to find it out Mm. outside of you. Um, And that's, I'm not a parent, but I imagine that that's a really um, scary place because you don't want to strip the innocence of your children too early. Um, and maybe expose them to things that they aren't ready for too early. And I think I understand that fear. Um, but I do think it's a question between what is what is more scary that mm. they find out from you or more to the question from an ecclesial body that you trust and are participating in and from the family of God um, or from, I mean, in my case, I was in the fourth grade and just on the playground. And I learned everything because of a post-pubescent, dude that had been held back three years right yeah so um i don't know and i think so what to answer the actual question what barriers do you think stand in the way i think fear Mm. um and i think it is a fear of stripping innocence and it is a fear and i really i understand the first fear but the former one i think is one that we need to work through which is a fear of exposure i think we're really Mm. nervous that if we expose our children to a conversation around sex, um, that it is somehow going to um, go ahead and corrupt them. And that the best idea is to keep them from that, like see no evil, hear no evil. Um, And I just don't think that is good. I don't think that's wise. Um, Again, I understand the base levels of that fear, but I think that is an unwise move. Mm. Um, Sex has a mythology around it. Yes. and especially as you go through puberty and you start experiencing these parts of your body and your, your person that you have not had a relationship to beforehand, um, 
curiosity and quite frankly, insecurity and fear is going to take over and drive you to find answers. And, um, whether those answers are found, um, through quite frankly, pornographic images, videos, and explanations, or through an imperfect and maybe awkward, but baptized conversation around sexuality. I think that's the choice we're dealing with. Um, especially not to be like too, um, crazy, but I feel really strong about it, especially with the advent of the iPhone and the increasing of technology in our kids' worlds. This is the reason why the age of exposure to sex and sexuality is going down. It's the presence of technology yeah, and um, exposure to porn, both by choice and not by choice. Um, so what are the barriers? I think it's fear and I think it's fear of um, corruption and fear of exposure. Um, and I think it's, we're ill-equipped. We are really ill-equipped mm. to how to talk about sexuality um, within any other construct um other than just wait until you're married and i completely affirm that doctrinal position however we have to have more to give we have to have more explanation we have to have more um more information to hand over to both our young and old people um that are either in sexually different situations or are experiencing puberty for the first time. Oh yeah. Um, so I think my answer would be fear and we are ill-equipped about a theology of sexuality and how that actually intersects with the anatomy that's going on inherently. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to cap that off while you were talking, it made me think about the fact that if we want the church to be a part of this, then um, ministers to young people and parents have to have more conversations. Um, and I mean, I would love to see a church where youth ministers are actually maybe even offering classes for parents about how do we have these conversations with your idea. student, you know, like, like walk through this together. I remember when I was, um, years ago, I was helping lead a small group of young ladies and I was a part of the leadership that discipled that group, uh, from middle school to early high school years. And, and I think this is harder in larger churches, but for us, we and we were just lay leaders but we were spending a lot of time with these girls and we had some lgbtq issues that came up in the group and things like that and we started gathering the parents regularly and we're like hey we're spending time with your daughters and we would love for you to know us we would love to know you we would love to talk about the conversations that are coming up and we just we felt it was really smart to start creating a bond with them and fortunately the group was small enough where we could we could do that. And, and, and the church was open to that sort of thing, but yeah, more conversations. If we want to invite the church into it, it's gotta be a cooperative thing between the ministers and the parents. I agree. All right. The next one, (laughs) if you were here, friends, you could see Blake Dean's face. Who decided or when did the church decide to stigmatize masturbation, given that it's not mentioned in scripture? I'll begin. Um, I think there is first and foremost some really wise counsel that I've heard um, a couple times from a couple different people, which is on the things on which scripture is silent, we get to hold a lot of space um, for grace on. So it's very clear that scripture doesn't talk about masturbation um, at all. Um, so it is an area where it's um, we have to use interpretive lenses, and I think there's a lot of grace for a lot of differing perspectives on it. I think where i've landed more personally um is i number one scripture is not clear on masturbation but it's very clear on lust Mm. um so if regardless of if the action itself um is 
deformative um, lust we know is. So, and is outside the bounds of um, a healthy, uh, like biblically oriented sexuality. So I think my first question would be, um, can we separate those? Can you specific person separate those? Are those two separate experiences? I know in my world, that's not two separate experiences. Right. Um, so I think that's a very clear place to begin um, because scripture is very clear on lust. And I think too, um, and it's not a, it's just something that the big question that comes up for me is, um, I think our sexuality is meant to be experienced together. Um, and when, whenever I can take my pleasure into my own hands, um, that feels, um, deformative to my own sexuality and my own, um, view of my body or other people's bodies, um, and I think there's conversations to be had about whether that's the the abuse of the thing or if it's the thing itself. But I think my big question is, can sexuality be experienced by yourself? And this is not shame about it like at all. I think that's just the question that I have um, in a world where masturbation is applauded and lauded as mm. um, a good and self-exploratory thing. Um I think my question theologically would be, can we experience sexuality? Can we take our pleasure into our own hands? Yes, I actually share that sentiment very much about the idea that um, part of, and, and the church is really kind of torn on this issue because this act d- does not necessitate like you actually um, watching porn or yeah. lusting, but nine times out of 10, that's what we're talking about. It's a close relationship. It's a really close relationship. So sometimes when we talk about this, we really should be talking more about pornography and those abuses. I I have sadly counseled so many young married couples Mm. who everything should be going right, but they're not having sex because one of them with a porn addiction cannot physically have sex with his partner because our brains are rewired and his only stimulus is coming through that solitary act. And it is so sad. It is so sad to see these people, people who love Jesus, but for whom this habit has been so malformative that, so that's, that's why Mm -hmm. that, so in, in reference to like, why does the church stigmatize this? It's like, well, that's, that's the kind of danger we're trying to veer away from. But at the same time, we're not talking about this well. And one of the reasons we're not talking about it as well is because we're only talking about guys doing it. No, and I think that's a crucial point. Yeah. So that's that's also what I'd like to just throw in there because as a female minister, I cannot tell you how many young women I counsel all the time who are struggling with porn and masturbation. Yeah. It is like I, I see books out talking about like the man strugglers and I'm not saying guys don't struggle with it, but don't tell me that girls aren't visual. Don't tell me that this isn't a female problem because not only is it very much a female problem, mm. but it is coming with added amounts of shame and silence. Exactly. That is really just ripping a hole through our young ladies. And I'm, I'm, I, I will beat that drum all day. This is one of my big soapboxes. So yeah, the church can do better. I think we need, to really talk more holistically about this because if people are freaking out about the fact that they might've had a wet dream or something that they couldn't control. And they think that just the very act is in and of itself, some sort of terrible evil. Mm. Like we, I think we really need to 
get get down to brass tacks about exactly what we're talking about when we talk about the dangers involved here. Um, so going back to how yeah. you sort of spliced it, I think that's spot on. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's two really key points to wrap that up. And number and before I say those, I just want to say like I completely I will let you bang that drum and I will bang that drum with you. Yeah. Um, that we we isolate it. We're getting better about talking about it, but we're only getting better about talking about it with our young men. Um, or men across the board and not women. And I think that's really destructive. Um, two things I think that reveals, I think this conversation is one of the greatest and most compelling reasons to say that our sexuality and our sexual experiences and even our ability to participate in our sexual experiences is a holistic effort. And it is not simply physical, it's not simply a, pr- a production or release of desires, but there's things that go on cognitively and if I can say spiritually in these situations. Um, and I think that's that's a countercultural claim um, as we strip um, sexuality down to just the brass tacks of desire and release and pleasure. It's like there's more going on um, cognitively and I'm so not even remotely qualified to discuss that but I have a lot of resources um, yeah. that I feel really strongly about and so um, and that I think do this really well and so we can throw some of those in the show notes um, but so that's number one and number two I think this goes back to our previous question which is um, it's a product of the root cause which is we are afraid to talk about sex in any form not a sacred form and not a deformed form um, we're afraid to talk about it. We're nervous to talk about it. Therefore, we don't talk about it. Therefore, these are the things that come up. Yeah. Um, and conversation helps. Even awkward conversation helps. Yeah. And and tying this all back to dating, if this is something that you have questions about or wrestling with, start working through this and start talking to people before marriage, before you get into those situations um if there are ministers listening who do premarital counseling ask about this spend time with each individual person in that couple and directly talk about these things we've when we started doing that we found there was so much more that we needed to address and that we needed to point them to for Mm. for help just just to give them a chance to give them a chance at a flourishing sexual life Mm. and a life in general because we're watching just if i can hit the the pornography drum for a moment it's like not only does that affect your sex life i we're watching an increase of body image issues for both men Mm. and women and being um at least hypothetically traced back to porn exposure and i'm pretty convinced about that um so yeah no i completely concur it also seems that purity culture and hookup culture could similarly represent two ends of a spectrum of approaches each of which emphasizes sex more or less depending on the life circumstances, particular struggles, and history of each person and their relationship with God. In that case, how should we navigate the spectrum to find the approach that best improves our relation with God, the church, and our partners? What sorts of questions do we need to ask ourselves and others? So Whoa. Yeah, so, okay, so this one comes out of um how we t- the the show where we talked about purity culture and hookup culture and we, we wanted to address this one just to kind of make some clarifying points because yes we talk about that as a spectrum but we're not necessarily trying to find like 
a place on that spectrum in which to land. Um, really Preferably it's, not. Yes, it's more about emancipating ourselves out of that. And the, and the reason we brought that in and, and made that sort of the framework for our discussion is because our discussions and our ideas about physical affection and sex in our dating relationships often come from this overbearing narrative that is either one or the other. And they're both tethered together because they're both reactionary to yeah. each other. So yes, they're a spectrum, but not necessarily one that we are showing like, here are the extremes, let's find the middle ground. It's really more about like reorienting the conversation all together and, and looking at it from like, I guess you could say like a biblical lens or just, just, just finding the ways that these are affecting us and shutting those down in order to seek clarity from a different perspective. No, I think that's well said. And I think just like any other um, framework or model for conversation, it's only as helpful as much as it's helpful. So it's not, this is not a way to explain every situation and every problem in every conversation. We just identified maybe some cultural, spiritual, or ecclesial moves that have been made regarding sexuality. We tried to elucidate some assumptions underneath those but I, I agree with your point, and I would second it in saying I think the biblical view of sexuality actually is very much off of that spectrum, transcends that spectrum. Um, and it's and both of those extremes are not helpful um, frameworks, nor are they even helpful contrasts for mm-hmm. the gospel. Instead, the gospel calls us to a very different kind of narrative. And this is, I think as we were prepping for this podcast and as we talk about sexuality, like Aaron and I, um, we talk about a lot how some of the root problems are just the assumptions that underlie. So part of what um, the church's job, again, to go back to that first question, part of the church's job is to shape our imaginations and our narratives around what sex and sexuality does, can, and should mean um, in the thrust of the gospel, in the mission of the gospel, and in the boundaries of scripture and our life together. Um, and so what we're suggesting is that purity culture and hookup culture are offering narratives that maybe just aren't helpful and are not gospel centric. Yes. Yes. So, um, so I also want to say before we move on to the next question, we we're sorry if we can't get to everyone's question and all the questions we got, and hopefully we're answering these things to your satisfaction, but we just wanted to, to, take it a little moment to to point out that you guys send us a lot of great stuff and um, hopefully this is giving you at least some something that uh, from what you've sent out to us. We really appreciate that. What does spiritual leadership look like in a dating relationship? And we saved the best for last. Best for last. Um, we got a couple different questions that have the same root idea. So we're going to try to address that root idea and then hopefully... Um, by proxy answer the other questions yes now you guys know because we we brought this up we talked about this um in in our episodes and so so the the different questions we got around this the the idea of like spiritual leadership and we got questions around like who should initiate what uh, particularly like our girls sexual purity gatekeepers can we ever initiate um also uh related to this idea of um, power struggle and dynamics in marriage. How do we make decisions if, if we are being feel like we're being called into two separate vocations or places? Or what does he have to know more theology than me? All of these things stem back to this idea of spiritual leadership and initiation and roles. And of course, this is very much the meat of of what we were trying to do with this series um, on this podcast for mutuality matters. So um, 
So I think I would just like to start by by giving just a little bit more. We, we sort of touched on this in one episode, so I'm going to give you more the, that was the teaser trailer. This is really more the full feature, um, which is uh, when my husband and I first got married, we were like, okay, biblical headship right on. Let's see how that works. Let's, let's flesh that out. And we were very diligent about trying to work that out in our marriage in real time and see like, okay, what does that mean? What does, what does it mean you do? And what do I do? What do you initiate? What do I initiate? And we began to kind of break it down and try to really faithfully follow this, this code that we thought we were reading appropriately. And what we came to find out is as we continue to grow in our spiritual journey together as a couple and maturing in our relationship with Christ is that we are both called to, um, to exist powerfully and, and promptly and consistently in each other's lives as initiators and spiritual warriors for each other because we are both broken and neither of us felt like we knew all the answers that needed to happen. Like when people ask us, who's the spiritual leader in your relationship? We say Jesus, because truly, truly guys, we don't, neither one of us, we, we have our good days, we have our bad days. There are moments when Mike preaches the gospel to me in ways I deeply need it in my moments where I am just lost and vice versa. There are moments when he is just lost or just drifting and I call him back, um, because I can, I can appeal to the Holy Spirit in him because we are both believers, because Christ is so central. We do that, and, and we, we hold each other in by preaching the gospel to each other in that way. And we really feel scripture um, affirms this because both of us need Christ. Both of us are broken. Neither of us have it all together. But the gospel and Christ is the one thing we have to lean hard into. And what that means is it puts us on a level playing field, very Mm. much the same way the gospel puts us on a level playing field. Um, And also we found out just pragmatically, it didn't work out all that well. Like if he's the tiebreaker, then there's no, okay, think about this with me. It doesn't work out with math. There's no real such thing as a tiebreaker because if I agree with him, then we do what he wants. If I disagree with him, then we do what he wants. Like it's, it does, it, there's really no such thing as being like the play caller. Like at the end of the day, it literally is just one person making those decisions. Um, and so we have found over 15 years of marriage that by not calling one person the spiritual leader, by both taking up the responsibility of initiating on every aspect in our marriage, then we both sort of bear up the responsibility of our marriage and the spiritual journey of each other. Um, Now that doesn't mean we don't divide things up. Like at the end of the day, Mike knows more about keeping our car maintenance. And so he does that. Like it's just, there's, there's things that we do, but that's mostly based on practicalities and gifting. But when it comes to the spiritual side of things, we feel that we are equals because we are broken and in need of the gospel. Mm. Wow, I have so many thoughts on this. And we're going to need to do a whole other episode on the core assumption of the question, which comes from primarily Ephesians 5, um, which is the conversations that we, or the dialogue that we have heard so many times, which is, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and so on. The leadership comes directly from this um, passage as well, which um, assigns the role of the head um, to the husband. 
Now, there's so many places I could go in this moment. I want to let you know I'm at a fork roads because I could either start a much longer conversation around, well, what does head actually mean? How does this actually look? Um, or I could go into some more of the um, closer to the question answer. So I'm going to lean towards the closer to the question answers, which the question is, how do you decide and how do you understand spiritual leadership in a dating relationship? And I would like to suggest a couple of things. Number one, even if you um, subscribe to the idea that, and you're trying to live faithfully by scripture by ascribing to the idea um, that men are the head of a marriage relationship, that still is not dating. Yeah. As we have talked about previously, that is, you are not covenantally bound yet. Yeah. So we can have a conversation about what it means to be covenantally bound and to image Christ in the church in a marriage relationship, but you are not there yet. Are you perhaps moving towards that? Sure. But you have not taken that covenant before God and your brothers and sisters and confessed that to one another and walked into new life together as one. You are still two. Um, so what does spiritual leadership look like in a dating relationship? I would suggest that it doesn't. Yeah. Regardless. Stop it. Regardless, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, and I think we don't want to interpret use by abuse, but I do think it's worth mentioning that when we apply this principle outside of marriage to dating relationships, we do not have the covenantal framework to even particularly make that work. Yeah. And so it leads um, to some really not good at best and really damaging things at worst. Yeah. Um, at best, it leads to um, maybe a silencing of certain questions or certain concerns by the female in the relationship. Um, at worst, it can lead to abuse, um, perhaps by the hand of the man in the name of leadership and submission. Um, and also I've just pragmatically, I've watched it lead to not being able to learn about each other not being able to grow together yeah. effectively in the construct of a dating relationship. Um, because you're worried about maintaining, um, the disproportionate growth of the male to the female. And again, there's a whole other conversation to be had. Aaron and I have shown our cards multiple times mm. where we, we are particularly convinced by, um, headship meaning, um, authority or meaning um, a higher position. Um, and just very briefly about that, and I would love to revisit this conversation in a later episode, but very briefly about that, I would like to suggest um, that wives submitting to the husbands um, is a cruciform image, just as husbands loving their wives is a cruciform image. And it's not a race to the top, it's a race to the bottom. Yeah, it's not a hierarchical structure as much as it is... Um, Mutual service. A, yes, yeah, that that position, which which really sets it in the context of what starts that passage, which of course is submit to each other. Um, but yes, so well said, Blake Dean. And there's there's one aspect here I just want to touch on because we had someone in, in asking around this question, asking about what if I know more about theology than my husband or um, would a woman still being single, like should she play dumb um, in an effort to, and, and this is, this is, man, this is such a tough one because this is a real struggle. I think especially in Christian circles, um, I have some dear female friends who are in seminary and if they're not married yet, this is definitely something that they're dealing with um, because if they know too much, if they're, they have sort of this expertise, they're worried 
that guys will get intimidated. They see guys getting intimidated and, and backing off and it makes them less meritable in some mm-hmm. way. Like it, it really kind of affects their relationships. And this is, this is such a sad reality to me because, um, so in, um, the book, when life and beliefs collide by Carolyn Custis James, see, took that long to bring her up. Um, she tells this story about, uh, an incredible, female mentor that she knew that was just so gifted in teaching and, and led this um, group she was a part of and who stopped doing that because she noticed that she was studying the Bible and knowing more than her husband. And mm-hmm. in an effort to keep the balance, she stopped studying yeah. scripture and um, to fulfill sort of this submissive role and so she wouldn't be overbearing and so Carolyn Custis James writes this whole book about why it is so important for women to know theology why we should not let some things like this stunt us from maturing in our faith we're called to mature in our faith like as women this is so damaging whenever we use this as an excuse to back off on this pursuit and so I'm a woman who is a minister I'm ordained I went to seminary I'm getting a doctorate um, of ministry. Um, and while my husband and I have both been in professional ministry um, for a long time, in my own marriage, I can say there are times when we'll be talking about some sort of passage and Mike would be like, you know, sometimes it's hard to talk with you about this stuff because you pull out the I know Greek card. Mm. And at that moment, it occurred to me that I needed to be more <laughs> just gracious and respectful because at the end of the day it's not my seminary degree that makes me any better off mike has the holy spirit in him i have the holy spirit in me and as a result i still have a lot to learn from him um and we mutually sort of have that together so so if we're not treating each other with that mutual respect it doesn't matter how knowledgeable someone is if we're going for that dignity and respect that's sort of the the way it falls out and hopefully hopefully there are men out there who are not being intimidated, but actually like this should be a turn on. Mm, I agree. Um, and I also think Paul's theology of the body of Christ is helpful in this, which is for, we are all given gifts. Um, we are given capabilities. We are given potential and we are given the realization of those things by the indwelling of the spirit of God within us. And to, if I could be so bold to back off um, of the education that you've received, the gifts of wisdom that have been given to you, and the gifts of others' time, energy, wisdom, knowledge that have been given to you, um, and to back off and to quote-unquote play dumb um, is to be ashamed of the work of the Holy Spirit within you. Not all of us have those degrees. Not all of us are going to get those degrees. And praise God for that. Mm. Just like I need my brothers and sisters who want to do chemistry and biology and other things with numbers, <laughs> I I need them. I need their knowledge. Their knowledge and their experience and their passion helps me understand God more, helps me understand the narrative in the world that has been created good but has been corrupted by evil and sin um, more. And so... But again, I think this hits a larger, more foundational question um, that can't be answered in 45 minutes, nonetheless 15, Yeah, which is, are giftings distributed based on 
the sex which you um, were born or are they not? And I don't ask that question to even be trite about that question or to load that question. I think that's a big question. Yeah. One um, I've wrestled with a, for a majority of my conscious intellectual life, which is, are women gifted teachers? Can they be gifted teachers? What does it mean if women are gifted teachers if they can't teach? Um, and, and what does that say about us? What does that say about God? Um, and there's a lot of really faithful and intentional and attentive work with scripture that has to be done on that. Um, and there are people that have done that. I would suggest, again, you mentioned Carolyn Custis James. I would suggest Paul and Gender by Cynthia Westfall. There it is. I think she does really thoughtful work on headship, especially in Ephesians 5, um, comparing it to other Pauline passages and su- suggesting that maybe it doesn't mean what we think it means. Totally. And guys, if, if our marriages, if our friendships, if our families are emulating the body of Christ, then we know <clears throat> that the eye can't see to the foot because you're different. I don't need you. The weaker parts are elevated to the highest standing and the head of it all is wait for it, Christ. Mm. So that's a framework for existing in these relationships. Um, you know, guys, I wish we... <laughs> more time to keep uh, going down these these rabbit trails we've really enjoyed the questions you've sent us we don't have to do a special q a session for you to do that we we love that interaction um so thank you for joining us today and if you enjoyed this podcast we'd love to hear from you we're on facebook instagram twitter um or you could leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you use um we appreciate when you uh, help us connect to other listeners and of course we love your questions and feedback Um, So I am Erin Monas here with my wonderful co-host, Blake Dean, and our fabulous producer, Bailey Dingley. And we are Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening.